My guest today is Gary McPhee, and to those people who live in the rodeo world, Gary will need absolutely no introduction to you. He is a very formidable competitor and currently a um, rough stock provider to rodeos right across the nation. Morning, Gary. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. That's good. That's good. Um, Gary, my research tells me that uh, you came from New Zealand to Australia as a 17-year-old to compete in rodeos. I guess the obvious question to me is, A, you must have been rodeoing in New Zealand, and why did you choose Australia over going to the States to try to make it big? Well, we used to, when we was in New Zealand, we used to get the hoofs and horns, and um, we'd read all about the Australian champions and the rodeos in Australia, and it was, you know, it was really exciting, and uh, I always said, well, I want to go to Australia. As soon as I'm old enough, I said, I'm going over there to, to compete in rodeos because we competed, in, you know, from about eight years old in rodeos in New Zealand. And and uh, it was just sort of, you know, Australia was the place to go. Yeah. So you came to Australia as a 17-year-old. Um, where did you make, hang your hat, I guess, so to speak, um, when you arrived? Did you go to Victoria or did you come north? Yeah, well, um, I came over with Billy Hughes in 1965 and we came down to Wangaratta to where he lived and then we went from there to Mareeba. And Mareeba was actually the first rodeo I'd done in Australia. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so that was 65. You climbed to the top of the uh, of the ladder pretty quickly from all accounts. When you arrived in Australia, were you a bronc rider or were you a bull rider or were you both? Oh, well, we were. We used to enter every event these days, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we, were, we weren't specialists in any event, but we just got it. We tried our luck at everything. Yeah. <laughs> and so was that what you did for a living when you arrived over here or did you have a job and rodeoed on the weekends? Well, we come over here and I come over here to rodeo and I, I went to what rodeos and we had a pretty good system back in them days. What we'd normally do was ring a rodeo committee and say that we were going to be there next week and was there any work. And they'd always line up jobs for you for a week or maybe two weeks. So some guys would go to one rodeo, they would work there, we'd go on to the next one, work there. And so we always had a job, you know, even it was under week or two weeks at a time, but we always managed to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, my research again tells me that your first title was in 1971. So you climbed to the top of the tree very quickly in Australia. What did you win in, was it an all-round cowboy? What was the title for 1971? Yeah, I won um, all-round cowboy and I think it um, was bull riding and my, in the steer wrestling, I think, that year. Well, I'm not 100% sure on what I won in that year. I might have been the calf rope, and I don't really know now. Um, I never kept track of things. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to win that title, you obviously uh, did plenty of rodeos. Was it like it is today, where you just chase the money from weekend to weekend, or was it the points calculated on a different level? How was it done back then? Yeah, it was a dollar a point then, and um, yeah, we we sort of travelled full time then, and um, 
Yeah, just done every rodeo we could. And so was there a, a few of you or just yourself or how many of you when you say we? Well, I I used to travel with Kenny Coleman a lot when we first started out and um, oh, we travelled lots of different guys, Francis Crawford and then in the 70s I sort of got my own outfit. I had, you know, a truck and horses and yeah, so always had someone travelling with you, yeah. Yeah. I hail from Theodore and Alan Torrenbeck was a, a legendary cowboy in our area and he drove everywhere and he told lots of stories about him and his wild driving to wild rodeos. Uh, I guess it was similar for you. You just packed up your gear and your truck and, and away you went. There was no such yeah. thing as flying to rodeos in those days? No, it wasn't no flying then. We drove everywhere and, um, yeah, I knew Alan Torrenbeck and, yeah, a really nice guy and actually I met Alan days when we was a kid in New Zealand and he came over there. Yeah. Yeah, mm, yeah no, um, we uh, produced this podcast out of Theodore and, and that was Alan's uh, home ground in the early days. Um, yep. So you uh, went on to win uh, 17 titles, is that correct? Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can tell us. You can be proud of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, which title did you think was uh, the not the best one to win, but which one do you remember most? Which one did you think you had to put the hardest work in to get to? Was Well, probably the first one's always the most exciting one, isn't it? Because, you know, if you've never done it before, the first one's always really good. Yeah. Did it get harder or easier as you, as you went on over the years? Well, I went to Canada and I spent 18 months in Canada and the States. And then I come back here in 1970. And then, then I won my first title and then... I won sort of like most of it till 74 then. I was like four times all round then. And, um, yeah, I really, um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed it them days and, and it was sort of just a way of life. Yeah. Clearly you were good. You were the best. You, you won it for a lot of years in a row in your time. What made you that much better? Was it just persistence, uh, your ability to pick a beast? What was it? Well, I don't really know, but it was just probably we were keen. We would go anywhere to practice. Um, and when you're at that age, like, you never thought there was ever a horse or a bull that could throw you. <laughs> but often that did happen. But if you, everyone ever bucked you off, you couldn't wait to get another go at him to prove that you could ride him, you know. And so in your day, who did you regard as the best? and the fairest judge that you ever came up against? Did you get to a rodeo some days and go, this is not going to be my day? No, not really. Um, I thought all the judges treated us pretty fairly them days, and um, we never really took that much notice of the judges. We just went there to compete. Yep. Yeah. Were you ever a judge yourself? Yeah, I judged a little bit. When I was in Canada and I dislocated my shoulder and I had a couple of months off and I judged over there, and then when I come back, I judged a few rodeos, but I always had more things to do than judge. <laughs> Bit busy for that job. <laughs> yeah. There's a mention of you um, being, I guess, for want of a better word, the alpha male of the rodeo arena. Did you see yourself like that or you just couldn't tolerate people who didn't want to toe the line? Well, I guess when you're young, you do some silly things and then – but. It was a, just a way that, you know, you thought of that. People always said, 
you know, if someone wants to fight you, you don't ever walk away and um, you should be up front and say what you think. And probably that, you know, wasn't probably the greatest thing, but... <laughs> Got you this far. <laughs> yeah. There is one that, you know, is, is mentioned um, in the history books, I guess, um, of a uh, scuffle in Tumbarumba. Do you remember that one? Yes, I do remember that one, yes. Um, <laughs> By the sound of it, Gary McPhee, you needed to be on my side. Well, yeah. Um, actually, Tumbarumba areas, you know, there was a lot of the fighters come and footballers there, and they were all pretty rugged sort of blokes. And it was New Year's Day, the rodeo, so New Year's Eve, a lot of young cowboys would go there. And I think that the footballers didn't like them getting on their territory, so, the, you know, they used to <laughs> sort of trim them up a bit. <laughs> and so one time, oh, Jimmy Pierce said to me, he said, oh, Gary, he said, these guys want to, he said, some of these guys up here want to give you a belt. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I'll be at the rodeo anyway. So that's how it actually happened, you know. <laughs> Went from there. Yeah. Uh, the footballers didn't come back the second year, is that what you're saying? No, no, it's been good ever since there, yeah. They've sort of got a bit of respect for us after that and, and no doubt you built yourself some respect right across the rodeo circuit of New South Wales after that. Yep. Gary, you're probably a little bit unique in your titles in that uh, you compete at both ends of the rodeo arena. How many of you did that in those days? You know, now you're either a rust stock or you're a timer. You're not both. Um, there's very few people that are both now. But back in your day, it appears that that was um, sort of fairly much the norm or were you just a little unique in that regard? Well, no, it was like it was a normal thing. When you went to a rodeo, you just went in every event you could get in. And I suppose that's how it come to be that we worked both ends of the arena. You know, we got on a lot of wild horses that weren't trained and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a lot of luck of the draw as well. You could go to a rodeo sometimes and they'd just have really wild horses and you'd be lucky to get one to buck, you know. But today, like, the horses are educated and, you know, it's a lot more animal-friendly. Mm. So in what year did you decide that you'd had enough of the rough stock and that maybe you needed to um, to put your bucking rein away for a while and, and just concentrate on the other end of the arena where it's probably not quite so hard on your body? Well, in um, 1976, I smashed my leg at Cheyenne and Wyoming and... Um, when I come back, I had quite a few horses and bulls that I used to keep around for practice, horses and bulls. And so then Cootamundra Rodeo actually said to me, oh, would you be interested in contracting our rodeo? And I said, oh, I wouldn't have enough to do the full rodeo. So they said, oh, well, if you get enough, you can do our rodeo. So I went out and got more horses and bulls. And actually, it, I was pretty lucky because I actually – ended up having a pretty good string of horses and bulls for that rodeo. And then that sort of started it all. I just kept going from there. And that was in 1976. And so is that when you finished your rough stock competing or did you continue to try to do it all, be there with owning the stock and riding them as well? No, I, I had quit riding bulls and bareback horses by then and just working the times against from then on. So 1976, is that the year that uh, the horse Isaac Queen hit the circuit? No, that would have been a horse we had called Silver. 
which I bought from uh, Norm Cakebread when he sold out. And he was the horse we won Saddle Bronc Horse of the Year with in 1976. And so when you, you started out with your rough stock team, how many horses and bulls does it entail for you to be able to make a living out of that sort of um, industry? Well, back when I started out, our normal contracts with the rodeo was to supply 60 horses and 40 bulls. You know, we used to get a lot of entries back there, but today you don't get as many entries. But we would still have 60-odd bulls in our team that we, you know, we regulate around and probably 130 horses. How far do you travel now with your team? Do you still come to Mount Isa with your stock? Yeah, we've been going to Mount Isa for... Oh, well, ever since the first one we done there was when Chainsaw was, was a star and um, oh, we go to Mount Isa and Townsville and we do a northern run every winter, which is pretty good, you know, as you get away from the winter down here. <laughs> now, you said uh, that back when Chainsaw, there wouldn't be, um, even if you're not involved in rodeo or um, or the sport in any way, you would have lived in a fairly uh, small environment if you hadn't heard of the bull called Chainsaw. Did you breed him? Did you buy him? How did he come to be? No, well, actually, I was doing some rodeos and a fellow named George Hempenstall from Yass. George rode bulls and I knew him fairly well. And he said to me, he said, Gary, I've got two bulls here. He said, would you take them and buck them? And I said, yeah, of course I'd take them. And he said, one bull's named Goldbuckle. And he said, the other bull's Chainsaw. And he said, he's pretty wild. I said, yeah, that's okay. So... We'd done a rodeo at Forbes, and he bought them from Yass across to Forbes. And then we were going north from there, and we went up north, and we'd done the rodeos. Well, every rodeo we'd done, Chainsaw just got a little bit better and a little bit better, and, you know, then started throwing off all the big names. <laughs> and uh, he ended up to be the star. Yeah. So in those days, did you buy your stock or did you have people ring you? You know, I can remember when I was a kid growing up, any bull that charged the yards, he would be sold to someone who was going to put him in a rodeo. That's how they got them. Or someone would ring and go, I've got these bulls that just need to get out of here. Do you want them? Or did you have to buy them right back in those days? Yeah, we bought a lot of bulls. And then um, I used to work at a place at Duringa, Pat Dunn's. And um, I got some bulls off Pat Dunn, and then I got a few off Mark Rowe that's up there near Dysart. And, yeah, we, we sort of picked up bulls from everywhere. We used to buy a few off Pat Speedy and, yeah, wherever we could buy a, a good bull from, we would buy, yeah. And so the horses, how did you put that string together? Well, first started off. Kevin McTaggart, he went and bought some horses off Buller Downs for me and, and actually some of them turned out not too bad and and then we went on and we bought horses. We actually got some horses off Dick White from South Australia. We bought horses off Ian Wayne when he sold and, um, yeah, we just sort of, whenever there was a sale of a selling bucking horse, we always sort of tried to buy the best of them and, and then we started breeding our own which was as soon as we had good mares, we bred from them and we bought we bought some horses off Jack Abdi at Mount Isa and Isa Queen was one of them and she had a foal to a Clydesdale horse and Isa Queen herself was a really good mare and so we kept him 
and he was actually the first stallion we started to breed with. And so do you still breed them today or you think? Yeah, no, we've been breeding horses ever since, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we've been breeding over 30 years now. Mm. On the bull scene, do you breed any of those now or do you think it's just easier to buy them or is it, you know, you can't find what you're looking for if you do that? Well, we breed most of all our own bulls and horses today, yeah. But we still do buy it. If we see something we like, we still would buy it, you know. And so with your bulls, are your genetics all Australian or have you have you gone down the road of importing some, you know, US or Canadian genetics? Do you think the stock are better than ours or do you think that's just all in the eye of the beholder? What semen from America and, and we have, you know, we've got bulls with an American bloodline and, and a lot of our own bloodlines. But um, I think today, you know, you, you breed your own for so long and then you need another bull for an outcross. So you look at America or Canada for their semen. Hmm. So let's swing around and we'll go back to the other end of the rodeo arena now and um, your um, titles that you've held in relation to timed events. Do you still compete as a timed event competitor? I haven't competed this year. Not many people have. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I got a bit of a shoulder injury and I sort of having the year off to let it, you know, rest up. Yep. Yeah. So in the timed events, what are you still competing in if you could? Only the team roping, yeah. Team roping. And I guess you're still travelling the length and the breadth of the country doing that when you take your stock. Yeah. Do you take your stock and then that decides where you compete or do you do it in reverse? Do you think, I'm going to compete at Warwick Rodeo, I'll ring them and see if they want to use my stock? Well, no, I I usually compete at places where I take my stock, but then um, uh, some places, you know, I'll, I'll just go there and compete as well. But, you know, the competing side of it now is getting uh, less and less. So over your time, which has been a damn long time in the rodeo industry, what do you think's been the biggest major change you've seen? Oh, the biggest change is contract stock. You know, when I first started, there was virtually no stock contractors. Every committee had their own horses or bulls or whatever. And and because they contract stock now, they're looked after better and... They're um, trained. They know what to expect when they go to a rodeo. So do you think because of the contract stock, there is a a consistent circuit, do you think that makes a big difference to the ability of the competitors today? Yeah, I do think so, yeah. They get on a lot more evener type of horses, you know, horses that, that buck that they can fit a ride onto. It does make it a lot better for them and, and of course, then they train as well, so. You know, I can remember as a kid going to the local rodeo here in Theodore and every ringer and every person in the district had a go and it was funny to watch some of them. Do you think um, that as a spectator sport, it is seen as a far more professional sport now than it was back in those days? Yeah, it, it's a lot more professional sport nowadays than it was then. But, you know, it's still open for, like, if the ringer wants to come in and have a ride, they have the second division and that, and that, and a lot of places they have a poly buck jump and stuff like that where, you know, they can still get involved, yeah. Do you think that's a good thing or do you go to rodeos and go, this is like pulling teeth and watching paint dry? Well, today the way we run rodeos is, 
if it's a four-hour rodeo, what we do, we go through and we try to put four hours action-packed of the best stuff we've got. So we run off what we call a slack, and if we have something that's not, you know, we might only put half a dozen of them, as you say, ringer-type riders in an event, but you might buck 20 of them, but you put the rest in the slack. So they get bucked out, and then you're trying to put the best. So you're trying to put the best of everything you've got there for the public. So when they go there, you know, they don't have to say, oh, gee, I was sick of that, or what they see is supposed to be the best stuff. Yep. What do you say to those cowboys who come to you and go, I've got a, a preferred, you know, bull or horse that I want to want to ride and I'd like to draw. Do you say to them, well, every beast I've brought here for you is as good as the last one. You just have to get on it and prove it. Yeah, well, what happens is, is when the cowboys enter, they enter through, well, our, the APRA, the pro circuit. They enter at Warwick through the pro. And then um, we put our stock numbers into them on the Monday prior to the rodeo, and then they all get drawn through a computer. So we really don't know who's going to draw what till the computer spits it out. Yeah. And, I mean, that's an exceptionally fair way to do it. Do you think, though, yeah. that that way really sorts the cowboys that can from the cowboys that can't? Or do you think, you know, if you're a cowboy that's verging, just, you know, you do it for a bit of fun, but you happen to draw your best horse, you are going to have a better chance of being in the money than if you're Cody Anglin and draw a horse that's new to you and you're not real certain about its ability? Yeah, well, we try to keep them as even as, you know, we try to have everything we try to put in the draw for the rodeo. We we hope to think that they could win on each one. And a lot depends on the riders because, you know, some of them riders get a lot better result out of a horse than some others. Mm. Some guys, you know, might pull on their heads and hang on to them and don't give them the chance where some riders, you know, really let them do their best. Yep. So over the years, you would have seen it grow from a fairly amateurish sport in Australia to what is now a very professional sport that some people, you know, that's what they do for their living. Do you think that's been an improvement in the sport? Do you think the professionalism of the sport is something that everyone who's involved in it should be congratulated about? Yeah, I do think so. That Because um, today, you know, we have a code of conduct and we have everything with the animal welfare and everything is looked after. You know, there's things you can do, things you can't do, and and it's all policed, you know, pretty well now. And, you know, in the old days, anything went, you know, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> that was a bit of fun back in those days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, you've touched on the animal welfare. Certainly, I would think since 1976, when you started out with your rough stock till now, you would have seen a huge change in that. And not so much in the way that you looked after your animals, but the way it is now perceived that what is done. Do you think professionally you are kicking some goals in that regard in the light that people see the sport in? Yeah, I do think so. And um, every rodeo we run here in Victoria, we have a vet in attendance and, and we have to have a permit from the DPI. Yeah, everything's spot on. Yeah, look, it it just stops 
someone that doesn't know what they're doing to come in and run a rodeo and, and don't look after their stock. And every contractor that I know that's involved in the rodeo business, their number one priority is their stock. You know, that's the number one priority is look after that stock. Yeah, I mean, I guess what the average person who thinks it's cruel doesn't understand is that that is your business. Yeah. You're certainly not going to, uh, you know, wreck your own business and that doesn't matter what you do. Um, do you think professionally the APRA portray a good image of that and do enough to, I mean, from where I sit, it looks like it's it's very well done, but then I've grown up around it so it's not new to me. Um, but if you're someone who's sitting in Sydney looking at it do you think the APRA have done a good job of portraying what you do to look after your animals and what they actually mean to you? Yeah, I think they have done a good job. We have some pretty good people in in that respect and um, we have animal welfare meetings and all that. So it's, everything's done spot on, you know, is it? You get different groups, they all rave on about how cruel rodeo is and that. There's no cruelty in rodeo. Mm-hmm. The stock are very well looked after. And, you know, myself, I wouldn't, if I got my stock at a rodeo, I wouldn't let anyone be cruel to one. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure I'd say, hey, that's not on. You don't do that. Mm, no. And, no. Um, and, and the contractors that I know are all the same. They yeah. look after their animals and they look after rodeo. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's your bread and butter, isn't it? It's in your best interest that it's all it's all well and professionally run. In your string at the moment, what do you think are your best ball and best horse? What should I be looking out for at the moment? Oh, well, Top Girl, she's Cheyenne Top Girl. She's still one Saddlebronc Horse of the Year again this year. So, um, and, and Cajun Lady, they, they sort of go head and head um, in the Saddlebronc. And, and I've got a young horse there that, going to be pretty good. And then in the bulls, I've got a, a bull called High Alert that I think is going to be really good. Mm. He hasn't been ridden as yet, but, yeah, he's only a young bull. He's done two seasons in the open events, and, yeah, I think he's pretty good. Mm. So, you know, you've now got that string of bulls and that string of horses. What does it take for you to train them to get them to a level where you go, righto, we're right to go to the next rodeo and I'm I'm happy and, and confident that I can put cowboys onto these these animals and that it's all going to work well. Is that months? Is it years? What does it take for you to get them to that stage? Well, I would say our horses, they would be at least five-year-old before they would go to a rodeo and, and we, we sort of, we handle them as yearlings just, to teach them to lead and tie up. Then I like to lead them off another horse so that, you know, when they're bucked, the they pickup man catches hold of them, they know to lead. Um, it's more or less getting them where they're not frightened of anyone and you have them to respect you, but you don't have them, you know, they're bred where they're just not going to be that quiet where you can just walk up and get on them and ride them. <laughs> not going to be the next kid's pony. no. <laughs> no, they've got that attitude, but you just work with them so that, you know, they're sensible about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what has been your most memorable moment as a stock contractor? I suppose winning a title with the horses and the bulls that I bred was the most memorable, yeah. And was that 
a particular year where you had a, you know, a, a great successful year? You know, is there a, a year that was better than others? Yeah, there's probably been that. But I, I just think that whenever you go to a rodeo and you stock buck good and, you know, they've all done their best, so you're happy with them. But there was years where we won Bareback Horse and Bull of the Year. And, yeah, that was nice too. But when you see these young ones go out and they learn to buck and they, and they make you happy, yeah. I don't know that there'll be another person in rodeo who will parallel you. But, again, my research has showed that you've won 69 awards Gary, that's a fairly impressive career in rodeo. Did you ever imagine when you were a young whippersnapper of 17 years old on a plane out of New Zealand that this life was going to be as successful as it was or as it is? No, no idea. You know, I just followed my dreams and what I thought and, um, yeah, I've had a pretty lucky sort of a life, yeah. yeah. I guess horses and, and bulls are in your blood. So have you competed in any other horse disciplines that are not at either end of the rodeo arena? Yeah, when I was younger, I competed in the cutting events a bit and, um, yeah, a few things like that, but that's about it, really. Just didn't give you the same adrenaline rush? It was pretty good. I actually won a futurity one time, a cutting futurity, but, um, yeah, it was good, but I guess rodeo was the main thing, yeah. Yeah. And so COVID-19, of course, is the topic of conversation at the moment. And, you know, rodeo has come to a grinding halt, I guess, because of it. So at the moment, all of your bulls and horses are out in the paddock, going to be waxing fat, no doubt, by the time the next rodeo comes around. Is there any light on at the end of the tunnel in regards to that, certainly in Victoria? Well, there's no news yet, but we're hoping to be started again in October at Warwick Rodeo. Yep. And... Um, Warwick is actually talking about having a really big rodeo this year, so um, we're just hoping that everything settles down by October, so they, you know, it's a, it'll be a, a great show. Mm. Who was the best horse that you rode as a competitor? Was there one that when you got to a rodeo and you'd drawn that horse, you thought, I'm in the money tonight? Oh, look, yeah, there's several then, yeah. There was a horse we used to like to draw, a horse called Troubles of of Gills. He was a great horse. You knew if you had him, you were going to win anyway. But um, <laughs> uh, oh, I guess there was a lot of horses, but Troubles is one we all really used to like. Yeah. And what about the bulls? Oh, well, I guess um, just whatever, really. I mean, there was... Lots of good bulls around and um, point danger and bulls like that. Any bull that hadn't been rode, we were always ones that we always used to think we'd love to have a crack at him, you know. <laughs> yep. So in more recent times, you know, who do you think the all-round cowboys are that people need to watch and will make it on the big scene eventually? Oh, hell. Um, there's a young fella, Jared McCain, Riding bareback horses really good. He's a pretty, and he can ride bulls as well. So he's one I think could be a contender. And um, oh, you know, there's there's a lot of young fellas out there today that's that's starting to really come on. And yeah, I think the competition is going to actually get pretty good over the next few years with the younger kids that's coming on. 
I guess one of the differences that you must notice now is, you know, all-round cowboys, they're either rough stock competitors or their timed event competitors, there's very few who were like you who could compete at both ends of the arena. Do you think that's come about because of the professionalism and the money that's now involved in the sport and has allowed them to concentrate on one particular discipline rather than thinking I've got to have a go at everything? Or, you know, that's just the difference in the sport, the change in people's dynamic now? Yeah, I think it's actually the cost involved in it for them. If you go to a rodeo today and, and you're going to be in four or five events, it could be uh, about $150 to end each event. So you're going to kind of pick out the events that you know you've got the best chance in. And that's why, you know, you see guys today working one or two events where when we started out, the entry fees were only like about $2 an event. And, you know, you'd go there and you'd enter every event because you'd only have to win one and you'd have your money back. Yep. Let's look at that then. So, you know, there's a couple of, you know, well, we'll talk about Cody Anglin. He, he certainly is someone who's um, made in both Australia and the States. Do you think he has the ability to become an all-round cowboy by just sticking to his horses? He does have the ability to be one, but I think he would need, he can ride bareback horses and saddle bronx really good. But I think most time event competitors will work three events. So that's why it's that much harder to beat the time events because they'd be working three events and you're only working two. Yeah. And so do you think that is something that needs to be looked at in the future of the sport? Well, I think they should actually change the all-around. And if they had the high money winner as the high point champion... And then the all-round champion had to work a rough stock and a timed event. That's the fairest way to do it. So did you think your thought will get much traction within the pros? Well, it could. Yes, it could. (laughs) (laughs) I think the all-round champion should be able to work the rough stock. And I'm not saying that some of the guys that work the time events can ride rough stock, but they choose probably mainly to do the time events because they work in three events rather than work in one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's something that I always look at and think, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Shane Kenny and the likes has never been to the other end of the arena. He's an amazing competitor at what he does at his end of the arena and is unbeatable and, you know, vice versa. You put Fraser Babington at the other end in the, in the timed events and he probably wouldn't be able to do what Shane does but at the end of the day, one fellow is seen as the all-round champion and the other guy is not. It's something that I think is interesting to watch. It is very interesting and um, I would think that there could be a change on before long and um, I would hope that the all-round would actually come back to a um, rough stock and a time event. Yeah, no, it would be great to see. Gary McPhee, thank you very much for talking to us today. You do have an amazing story to tell and... Uh, Once COVID-19 is over, we look forward to seeing you again at a rodeo in Queensland. Take care. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.